Bienvenidos. Hello and welcome to City Break Seville, episode 11. Gastronomia. An excellent excuse for a tour through some of the very loveliest things on offer to eat and drink when you're in Andalusia and particularly in Seville. I found a nice quote to open the episode with. It's in Spanish, so bear with me. Apparently it's a Spanish proverb and it sounds like this. A quien Dios quiere bien, en Sevilla le da a comer, which I believe means he whom the gods favour will be given the opportunity to eat in Seville. So if that doesn't set your taste buds going, I don't know what will. I can contrast that actually with a quotation from one of the archetypal Brits abroad, one Richard Ford, travelling in the 1830s. I suppose we have to accept that he probably didn't have the opportunity to be as cosmopolitan as we like to think we are today. And you'll be hearing later in the episode, he did find things to eat that he did enjoy, but he also found something he really didn't think much of at all. And that was dried codfish, about which he pulled no punches. His advice was basically, don't eat it. And he went on to explain why, with the following words. It only creates an insatiable thirst, to say nothing of the unavailing remorse of a non-digesting stomach. Okay, so you've been warned. The plan for the episode then. Going to start with an overview of Andalusian food, then maybe focus on a few of the staples, things like olives and fish, about which it would be nice to know a little bit more. We have a whole section to the mysterious topic of tapas. If you've been to Spain a lot, you probably know more about tapas than I do. If you haven't been, you may well find it as baffling as I did when I first went. Small mention of sweet treats, a few ideas on eating out, a little section on sherry, and some quotations from some of our intrepid travel writers to finish the episode. So, to start with then, it goes without saying that traditional Andalusian home cooking is going to be based on all the things which are easily available in that region. So, it's coastal, actually Mediterranean and an Atlantic coast, so don't be surprised to find every kind of fish. It's mountainous inland, so that's going to lead to meat and game. It's known as Europe's vegetable garden, that's more actually to do with the acres and acres and acres of plastic polytunnels around today in which vegetables are grown and exported to the rest of us. But nevertheless, it's a reminder that vegetables grow in abundance there, so they're going to feature in the diet as well. The food that's eaten is influenced, again, as so many things are in this region, by history. So a leaning towards some of the foods that were brought back first to Andalusia anywhere in Europe by people like Christopher Columbus, so that would be peppers and tomatoes and potatoes. I think it would be fair to say too that the fact that Andalusia has often been one of the very poorest regions in the whole of Spain has an influence and means that things like meat are eaten in smallish portions, hence the very thinly sliced ham, hence the idea of cured meats, because you would do all you could to make the pig that had been slaughtered last the whole winter through. It may explain a little bit the idea of tapas, so very small portions of certain things, the use of batter to eke out things like fried fish. The tapas culture itself is something you're definitely going to notice as soon as you get there. You'll probably also be very aware of the Moorish influence on what's eaten. Elizabeth Nash, for example, in her book Seville, Granada and Cordoba, explains that as follows, quote, Olives and oranges, along with saffron, almonds, garlic, onion, coriander and chocolate, are deeply embedded in the cooking and entire culture of the region around Seville. The Spanish playwright and poet Lope de Vega described the Moors as being, quote, people who eat raisins, rice and couscous. Other ingredients that didn't come up in either of those quotations, but are very much 
of Arabic origin would include lemons, other spices like nutmeg and cinnamon, and often the sweet things eaten there have an Arabic influence. Lovely pastes and cakes made of almonds and eggs and honey. It's said that the Andalusians learnt those ideas from the Moors who settled in their land and stayed for a number of centuries. Any description of Andalusian cooking is going to focus particularly on very key ingredients. Olives might be top of that list. They were originally planted by the Romans and somewhere along the centuries the situation evolved when Andalusia became Europe's biggest area for olive production. To quote Elizabeth Nash again on a drive from Cordoba to Granada, she described the area as being, quote, impregnated with the fruity aroma of olive oil. It hangs in the air like intoxicating essences from a hot bath, she wrote. The people of Seville will tell you, or some of them will, that if you climb to the top of the Giralda, i.e. to get the best view available over the surrounding countryside, when you look round, you are surveying the finest, fattest olives in the whole world. Not for me to say whether that's actually true, but I can tell you that I read that there are no fewer than a 100 million olive trees in Andalusia. Lots of different types, of course. I think if you go into a supermarket and just ask for olives, they might want to know whether you fancy godales or manzanilla or machacaras. And I dare say there are many more as well. Olive oil is also a many-layered topic. Starting, for instance, with the fact that the Spanish word for olive oil, aciete, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, derives from the Arabic. The words az-zaid mean juice of the olive and tells us, I think, that it was during the Muslim occupation of the country that olive oil became such a prominent ingredient. Again, there's not just one, all sorts of different classes of oil. A bit like French wine, really. They have degrees that, if you know how to read the labels, will tell you about the quality. The best being extra virgin. All the good ones get something called a denominación de origen, a label telling you where it's come from, so from an area and a producer known to be good and proud to tell you that they it was that produced it. Again, it's a bit like the appellation contrôlée on French wine, isn't it? Perhaps the other absolutely key ingredient is jamón, so ham. That too is strictly classified. So if you buy jamón serrano, which I think is most of the dried ham, cured ham, that tells you that that's come from ordinary white-coated, if you like, pigs. Whereas if you buy jamón ibérico, which is also sometimes labelled pata negra, negra, I think, being the Spanish for black. Anyway, jamón ibérico then is ham from black pigs. They are local to the area. They're the ones, especially on the top grade of ham, the one with five jotas, J-O-T-A-S. That tells you that the pigs were free range and that they've been fed on a diet of acorns. Meat in general is definitely part of the diet. Beef, actually even bull meat, found on menus labelled things like the rabu de toro, which means bull's tail, but also other pork products, for example chorizo, spicy pork sausage, um, morcilla, which is a blood sausage, and all of these things, an indication, I think, of the careful husbandry that was the tradition in rural Andalusia. You may have had a pig and reared him, but you didn't have an endless supply and you had to use every last part of it. Moving on from meat then, come to fish, another absolute mainstay, as it would be in a land between the Atlantic and the Mediterranean. You can find all the sorts of fish that are well known in the UK, often served under the title pescaito frito, which means fried fish, often small fish coated in a batter made with flour 
chickpea flour and, and wheat flour mixed often and quickly fried in olive oil. Certainly a much, much greater variety of fish and seafood than we're used to. You'll find all the familiar things, hake, prawns, tuna, sardines, sole and so on. You'll also find things that perhaps we don't eat quite so often. Squid and anchovies, oyster, clams, swordfish, octopus. So there's obviously a lot to get to know and understand. And to help things along a little bit, I'm going to read two quotations from a book called Seville, Magic City. I think it's some kind of official guidebook, perhaps produced by the tourist board, although it doesn't say that. But it does read quite authoritatively, and it's got a nice description of typical civilian food in the two distinct seasons, so one for the summer, one for the winter. So here goes. Intended to alleviate the summer heat are the gazpacho andaluz, the civilian ensaladilla, and other types of cold foodstuffs, such as the salpichon and varied salads. The pescaito frito is a variety of small fish, floured and fried in deep olive oil and eaten throughout the year. A wide range of cold meats is also eaten, serrano ham, different cheeses, and the traditional serranito, an Andalusian bread roll, originally from Seville. In winter, there is the native cocido andalus stew, with chickpeas and fatty meats, beef, chorizo, blood sausage and ham, fried fish, chickpeas with spinach, elaborated in the style coming to us from the Arabs, I think that's been slightly weirdly translated actually, as well as oxtail, larded pork fillet, an Andalusian tripe dish called menudo, flamenco-style eggs, potatoes and a chopped meat and vegetable soup called picadillo. I don't know if that helps at all, I hope so. One thing you're definitely going to have to get on top of if you don't already know all about it is the whole idea of tapas, found all over Spain, but particularly Andalusian and very, very common in Seville. You'll have basic questions like, what exactly are tapas? When are they eaten? Difficult to answer in one word, those questions. So the best definition I can give is that they are perhaps snacks, often ones eaten alongside a drink. But it's a real custom in Seville, or Andalusia generally, such that they have an actual verb and noun form to describe the art of going out for tapas. And that's the word tapeando. So, to rewind a moment, how did it start? I think the general belief is that they originate really from the 19th century. They were thought of as little snacks to accompany drinks. And they were given the name because tapas means cover. And they came from the fact that Good bartenders often gave you a cover for your drink to keep the flies away and the custom evolved of making it a little treat, something to eat, perhaps a piece of bread or cheese. And then the idea grew, offering customers snacks with their drinks and the idea of tapas was born. Originally they were free, you hadn't asked for them, you were given them, it was a little sign of goodwill from the bar owner to you. These days far fewer of them are free, although I have read that actually the custom of giving small tapas and not charging for them has lingered on in Andalusia longer than it has elsewhere. I think you could certainly expect that maybe you will get unasked for a little basket of bread or a little dish of olives and not be asked to pay for them. On the other hand it's certainly true that there are menus devoted to tapas from which you choose what you would like and obviously you've got the prices there as well. There are one or two other legends about where they came from There's a bit of an idea that Alfonso X in the 13th century started the whole thing. He'd been told by a doctor to eat alongside his drinking and he began to like this custom and eventually decided that everybody should do it. So he passed a law saying that all bars should be providing snacks. I don't know if that's true. 
Okay, so what actually are they? Again, not an easy thing to answer because the big thing I noticed about them is the absolutely massive variety. However, help is at hand. I found a book called Seville Bars and Restaurants for the summer season. It's basically a list of page-long adverts for various restaurants, but there's a little bit of editorial at the beginning and the edition I got has got something called the Top 10 of Tapas. They claim to have actually conducted a survey, found out what people are actually serving most of, and so I thought it might be a good way to show the sort of great variety there is on offer to just read you out the things that made the top ten. I've watched enough game shows and whatnot to know that you have to count backwards and keep the suspense of what's going to be top till last, so I propose to follow that pattern and start with number ten, which is a montadito described as a small crusty sandwich served hot and it explains that it comes in a whole variety of formats. Basically anything practically can be inside the sandwich. The examples they give are serrano ham, pork fillet, peppers, tomato. Number nine you may have been expecting, Spanish omelette. Small slice thereof made in a a pan, quite a deep omelette and cut into little wedges. Place number eight goes to carriada which is described as pork or beef cheeks. Cooked, stewed in fact, with onions, peppers, garlic, carrots, perhaps a bay leaf, paprika, tomatoes and some red wine. Cooked very slowly on a very low heat. Place number seven, croquette. And it goes to some lengths to say that they of course can be all sorts of different things. They're basically a tasty filling with a light bechamel sauce rolled up into a little portion and deep fried. So inside you might find ham or chicken. You might find oxtail, prawns, wild mushrooms, all sorts of things. Place number six goes to Solmillo al Whisky. And it goes on to explain it's Iberian pork pan fried with a sauce, probably made from olive oil, garlic, butter, meat stock and brandy. Yes, says the booklet, it does not actually contain whisky, but rather Spanish brandy. Makes you wonder why they call it that, but oh well. And we're told that it's served in bars, often between two slices of bread. So again, it's a sort of hot sandwich. So that's the Solmillo al Whisky. Number five, one that I definitely saw and indeed ate quite a lot, spinach with chickpeas. It says that this originated from the period of the year leading up to Easter, to do with not eating meat, I expect, in Lent, but that now it's sold all year round. It explains that, in fact, it's got Arab roots, given the spices with which it's normally flavoured. Number four then, adobo, which is a battered fish. Usually, it says, made with dogfish, a fish with very white flesh and a fairly bland taste, so therefore improved by the addition of batter. And we're told how to make the batter, flour, garlic, vinegar, paprika, salt and oregano. Okay, it's getting exciting now. Place number three, ensaladilla, a potato-based salad. The simplest version will be just simply chopped boiled potato with olive oil and mayonnaise. But there might be additions, prawns perhaps, or what they call Russian style, cooked and diced peppers, carrots, peas. Place number two, I think this is the one I was most surprised to find so high up, is snails. It's a season for those, mid-May to mid-July, and we're told that they are stewed in various spices, coriander, paprika, cumin, thyme perhaps, and made into a delicious spicy broth. It says every bar in Seville has its own recipe and contests are held each year to decide on the best. And the very top one, number one, Serrano ham. And it explains that this is partly because it's generally a local delicacy and partly because in Seville 
you'll find that practically every bar and restaurant has them hanging up for all to see so you're going to think of it very easily and they serve it properly by which they mean cut very very thinly and there and then in front of you. Not much, says the booklet, can beat a freshly cut, delicately thin slice of ham from an Iberian pig. I hope that serves to demystify to some extent, but I have to add that I saw a whole host of other things on tapas menus as well. Couldn't possibly list them all, but just as a few examples, goat's cheese with cherries, fried green peppers, albondigas, which is the Spanish for meatballs, almendras fritas, which means fried almonds, and the ubiquitous patatas bravas, which I think might be the one I saw most commonly. That's a spicy fried potato dish with a red sauce, some kind of very spicy tomato sauce, and possibly one of the least common ones I noticed, but which did leap off the menu when I looked up what it meant, and that's orejas de cerdo, pig's ears. Do with that information what you will. OK, what about sweet stuff? My impression was that there wasn't so much of that, The very best-known sweet thing that I saw a lot is something called churros, available all over Spain, I think, not particularly civilian, but very nice. Deep-fried dough sticks, think doughnut really in taste a little bit, which you dip into hot chocolate. Certainly served at breakfast and apparently eaten too, if you've got room between lunch and dinner, for a merienda, a sort of mid-afternoon snack, what we might call afternoon tea here in Blighty. And so popular that there are, in fact, establishments known as churreria, so actual churro cafes. Other than that, I would say a lot of fruit was eaten. Ice cream was very popular. I did see some wacky flavours, such as lime and basil and watermelon and rosemary. But my absolute top favourite, I'm afraid, was muerte por chocolate, for which I guess the translation to be death by chocolate. One civilian speciality be something called polverones sevillanos, which is a cake or a sort of mix between a cake and a biscuit, I think, almonds and cinnamon in flavour. Certainly I saw a number of references to something which translates as heavenly lard. It's a sort of cream caramel, really, a custard dessert with a caramel topping. And the Spanish for that is totino de cielo. Definitely there's an Arabic influence in the sweet foods. We've seen already a reference to the fact that puddings and Pastries made with almonds, eggs and honey are popular. Other key ingredients which are Arabic in origin would include raisins, cinnamon, lemons. Also then the New World influence in the shape of chocolate, which was originally imported from Mexico and found great favour in Spain. Richard Ford on his travels in the 1830s noted that, quote, chocolate is for the Spanish what tea is for the English. Actually, what he didn't know is I think we're pretty addicted to both of those. In combination, preferably, but anyway. Another place to find some sweet treats would be if you can locate an Arabic tea room, I think they're known as Teteria, where you can be served herbal teas and a variety of Arabic sweets, often served on a silver platter. I did find there were one or two little mysteries that needed to be solved, as far as eating in Seville went. One was what do they eat when, and in the end, I think the general pattern is breakfast, a rather a light affair, maybe just coffee, possibly coffee and churros, or possibly some toasted bread with olive oil and a tomato topping. Lunch seemed to be the main meal, a bit later than you might expect, sort of two o'clock onwards, I would say. And in the evening, there certainly were lots of restaurants serving dinner, but it seemed to me that maybe people went more for tapas, a little bit of bar hopping, a drink and snack here, a drink and snack somewhere else. 
and that generally eating was done later in the evening than it would be in, for example, the UK. Sitting down at nine or ten o'clock at night seemed to be nothing unusual at all. Another mystery was the portion sizes. So we got used to the idea of tapas, although we did notice that you couldn't predict exactly what size a tapas would be. Some were definitely bigger than others. The price was a bit of a guide, we worked out. So if you ordered patatas bravas, potatoes, which are obviously not that expensive, you might get quite a big portion, whereas something more meat-based would probably be smaller. Anyway, the smallest portion size then are tapas, followed by medias raciones, medium rations, so what we might call a small portion perhaps, and full raciones as well, so that would be a really meal-sized portion. Another mystery I discovered was the presence of cold soup in many more places than you'd think that would be the case. Gaspacho, as it's called, often made with tomatoes. One recipe I saw, for example, listed as ingredients, tomatoes, breadcrumbs, cucumber, garlic, peppers, vinegar and olive oil. It's said, of course, to have new world origins using tomatoes and peppers, and also to come from an agricultural tradition coming from the fact that poor farm workers were often given rations of bread, which would quite often be stale, which they would soak in water to make it more edible, and then they would try and turn it into a soup, adding in some oil, perhaps, and some garlic, and whatever fresh vegetables they had. So often, presumably, that would be tomatoes. A cold soup would be made from that, and they would eat that in the middle of the day, out in the fields. Since it's got soup in the name, or it has an English translation, you might be surprised to find that often it will come in a glass. There are other variations. One that I've seen reference to on a number of occasions is one called ajo blanco, which is a white soup served cold, a blend of almonds and garlic, and served with grapes floating on the top. I do actually know of a British-Spanish wedding, which took place about 20 years ago, I think, in Andalusia, where that is what was served. I think the British guests were slightly surprised perhaps I don't know what they've been expecting but I don't think it was cold garlic soup I hope you're feeling then a little bit more au fait with the vast spread of things that would come under the heading of Andalusian food or typical food to eat in Seville can't finish without a bit of a mention to sherry which is also a very Andalusian item it's not specifically Sevillian coming, as you may know, much more from a town called Jerez, J-E-R-E-Z, and that giving us the name Sherry, because Jerez, on an English tongue, will become Sherry. Described as a fortified wine, so building on the tradition of so many different cultures that came before, it's thought that the Phoenicians were the first people to bring vines to Andalusia. We know that the Greeks and the Romans had vineyards and produced wine, but the idea of turning it into Sherry which is basically a grape wine but fortified, came much more from the British merchants who arrived in the golden years and afterwards. The best-known British company would be Harvey's, as in Harvey's Bristol Cream and all the other varieties they sell, although I think it is true to say that the particular sort of sherry which they import most of, cream sherry, the very dark one, is exported to the UK far more than it's drunk in Andalusia. So basic sherry is a grape wine, about 11% alcohol, and it's fortified then with a pure grape spirit. So the fine ones might go up to, say, 15% alcohol proof, and the stronger ones a bit more than that, maybe 18%. The sort of sherry that's drunk in Seville is mainly the sherry known as fino, sometimes it's called manzanilla. 
and a glass of that, preferably chilled, is thought to be the best accompaniment to your tapas. The darker variety is called oloroso, which actually means fragrant or with a strong smell. That's the richer dessert wine, the one that's particularly popular for export to countries like Britain. To finish the episode then, I'd like to go back to two of our intrepid travellers who both had some experience of eating and drinking in the Seville or the Seville area and described it very nicely in what they wrote. The first one is our old friend Richard Ford, he who didn't think much of the salted codfish, but who turned out to be much keener on Manzanilla wine, which he described as excellent and very cheap. I think he drank quite a bit of it on his travels in the 1830s, and he described it thus. Delicate, pale straw in colour, extremely wholesome. It strengthens the stomach without heating or inebriating, like sherry. His recommendation is that you should drink it mixed with ice water, and that it will be an excellent companion to a cigar. He also felt that you should drink it with little biscuits known as alpistera biscuits and thinking, I imagine, that readers back in Britain wouldn't know what they were, he very helpfully gave the recipe. So here's what he put about that. Quote, Make it thus. To one pound of fine flour, mind that it is dry, add half a pound of double refined, well sifted, pounded white sugar, the yolks and whites of four very fresh eggs, well beaten together, Work the mixture up into a paste, roll it out very thinly, cut it into squares about half the size of this page. The page size, by the way, was about 7 by 4 inches. Then cut it into strips so that the paste should look like a hand with fingers. Dislocate the strips and dip them in hot, melted fine lard until it's crisp and of a delicate pale brown. The more the strips are curled up and twisted, the better. The alpistera should look like bunches of ribbons, powder them over with fine white sugar. And our second extract by Laurie Lee comes from A Rose for Winter, when he describes an evening that he spent in Triana in the company of, or perhaps more precisely as the guest of, one Antonio, whom he described as, quote, a prodigious epicure, loose-tongued and free-handed. And this man, who ran a bar called Pepito somewhere in Triana, offered Laurie Lee and his companion free glasses of wine from every barrel that he had piled up in the back of his cafe. The barrels were labelled in red chalk. We've got a list of the types. Cognac, Mancilla, Fino, Tinto, Amontillada, Blanca la Casa, Solera and Especial. Laurie Lee describes how the man's wife was out in the kitchen. He actually never saw her at all, all evening. But Antonio, the bar owner, kept shouting out to her with instructions to cook this or that, and she spent the entire evening frying away behind a screen, was never seen, but just sent out little snacks and tidbits for them to enjoy. So very much like the modern sherry and tapas that I was describing a minute ago. So this is how Laurie Lee describes what they were actually given to eat and drink. Quote, We had a glass from each barrel, and from the best, several. If one was not emptied before the next was offered, it was tossed airily into the street, and with every glass came some new delicious morsel, cooked by the invisible wife. Fried fish, fried birds, kidneys, prawns, chopped pork, octopus, beans and sausage. It sounds, does it not, like a real Triana evening. Perhaps you can try and reproduce that yourself. I think you'll possibly have to pay for the drinks and snacks, but you can probably try and reproduce the actual menu. Okay, so that brings us to the end of the Gastronomia episode. Next week, I'm proposing to go on to something quite different and have an episode on travel writing about Seville. 
I'm going to start with a selection of short quotations from a whole different range of authors from different centuries. And then I'm going to feature four different books and tell you a little bit more about those. Two of them are books that we've already heard quite a lot of extracts from. Richard Ford's Handbook to Spain from the 1830s and the two Laurie Lee books dating from the 1930s. That would be As I Walked Out One Midsummer Morning when he first went to Spain and his revisit described in A Rose for Winter, which he made in the 1950s. Then a couple of more recent travel books, which are both very particular in the angle that they take. So the first one, I think I have mentioned already, is a book by Edward Levine, in which he, as a journalist stroke freelance writer, followed a bullfighter and his entourage all the way around Spain over a whole calendar year. So we'll have a look at the Seville chapter on that. And lastly, a book which I don't think I have mentioned yet, by a writer called Jason Webster, who also travelled all around Spain with a very particular quest. But in his case, it was to find out all about the Arabic roots of the country. So again, we'll have a look at some of the general points he makes, and also perhaps at specifically what happened in the chapter in Seville. So that's more or less it for this week. Hasta la próxima vez. Until next time, muchas gracias. Thank you very much. Adios. Goodbye.